This is a Glass Box Media Podcast. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hello and welcome to the Blank Podcast, the podcast that delves into those frustrating moments with some well-known people. Uh, I'm Jim Daly and I'm joined, as ever, by my pal and yours, it's Charles Paley Phillips. Hey, Jim, how are you? I'm good, how are you? Good, did you have a good Christmas? Uh, Lovely Christmas. Yeah. But I'm feeling like energised for 2020. 2020, isn't that? That's pretty crazy. Yeah, it is crazy. That's the year after Black to the Future 2 was set in. Yeah. Because that was 2019, I think. So the hoverboards yeah. are way yeah. off. Do you not come off? on your hoverboard today? No. Oh, off, I left mine outside. Just, yeah. just change I mean, they've, called, they've made something that they called hoverboards, but they've still got wheels on them, haven't they? Yeah, so that's not really a hoverboard. It's not it? really a hoverboard, no, because no. it's attached to the floor. That's pathetic. So, yeah. Get your fucking house science. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good name for a podcast, oh, Yeah. <laughs> Pull your finger out. <laughs> anyway, um, today's podcast is... I, well, a comedy legend, and yeah. a, and kind of like I mean, we 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 did very well not to fanboy during this, yeah. but like a sort of personal kind of icon for the both yeah, of us. but yeah, certainly. But my first real um, a kind of comedy awakening, I would say, we were around the sort of early nineties when um, our guest David Bedil yeah um, was doing his shows with the the Mary Whitehouse Experience, for example, and then and uh, Newman and Bedil in pieces. I mean, I remember those shows from. Uh, coming back in the evenings from school and watching those. I think it used to be on a Tuesday evening. I'm sure it was on a Tuesday evening. It seemed to be that comedy hour on BBC Two. And then the next day we were all going in to and you tutor group and ev- literally everybody was quoting from those shows. Uh, yeah, and I was obsessed with fantasy football. Yeah, yeah, well, likewise. With, yeah, I mean, uh, but it was just... Afterwards, but yeah. 
like because I was so obsessed with football at the time, and then was getting into comedy, and it was like a yeah, perfect. And amazingly, they only did three series of fantasy football. I looked in, I looked, when I looked up, uh, which and it just felt like it went on for a lot longer than that. And oh, there, uh, was, there was the well. tournaments as well. There was yeah, the, there were, the and they did some live stuff. But I, yeah, I always thought it was it ran for a lot longer, and uh, that's the sort of thing they should definitely bring back. Hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, uh, it's been absolutely brilliant talking to David, and this is. Another great podcast. Yeah, We're very lucky go, with these yeah, guests. Yeah, and we go to all sorts of places again, as we as we always do on this thing. And uh, yeah, David came in, and he, I think he was a bit unsure about the blank kind of concept and how how we how we talk about that. But um, but then got straight into it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So let, let let's stop teasing it. Yeah. And uh, this is uh, the legend David Badil on the Blank Podcast. Um, David Badil. Hello, are we starting? Yeah, yeah, sorry. (laughs) All right, yes, hello. Welcome to the Blank Podcast. Thank you. How are you? you? Jim. Yes. Giles. Yeah. 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 Nice to meet both of you. And you. Yeah, it's it's, uh, lovely to be here. Am I allowed to say it's... Happy Christmas. You are. Or, or, <laughs> or is this Christmas party? Yeah. <laughs> put out still before Christmas. It's Christmas pod, I think. Yeah. So, yeah. You know what? But the election is so fucked up Christmas. Anyway. Oh. <laughs> I was thinking about that, about why it's so fucked up Christmas. And I think it's partly, partly an obvious reason, which is, you know, now it seems we have Halloween, yeah, which itself never used to be such a big thing, but it oh, becomes the... now, isn't it? Yeah, but now that it's a big thing, that's, once that's over, that's the marker of, like, the last big thing before Christmas, normally yeah. on the 31st of October. So normally all the Christmas jingling adverts and blah, 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 and fake snow starts then. But because of the election, they've got this other big thing, right? So that's the obvious reason. But then I thought another reason might be, of course, the election involves putting stuff up on your windows. Yeah. Right? And your house. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so people are thinking, well, I can't put the Christmas lights up <laughs> if I've got my Lib Dem sticker. Yeah. Up. Or if you can incorporate it. Yeah. Well, but then people might think it's not a Christmas thing. No, it's just no. a glamorous <laughs> Lib Dem sticker. Right? So I think that's what's bothering people as well. But once it's over, and I can tell people, can I, this actual podcast, although it's going to go out after Christmas, yeah. is being record- <laughs> recorded on the day yeah. of the general election. Yeah. Uh, very early in the morning. Well, not very early, but early enough for yeah. us not to say we haven't got any exit polls yet. <laughs> no, so, no, it's a bit early for exit polls. So uh, so we don't know. I've yet. already voted. Have you voted no, yet? No, not yet. No, no. you no, haven't voted. No, not yet. No. Yeah. I, I was might, intending I... to vote, but then I, um, I've slept really badly the last two nights. And possibly in terms of your blank theme, we could talk yeah. about insomnia <laughs> a bit as being part of a... Well, yeah, a, well, I'm a, I, I class myself as being a part-time insomniac. Because okay, I'm not really having. Well, that. no, no. <laughs> well, in the, um, I go through periods of having bad sleep, yeah. not sleeping at all, um, to having periods of having fine sleep and yeah. sleeping through that sort just of seven or eight hours. Sleeping, well, possibly, <laughs> possibly. But I do have. I will go through weeks, sometimes months, of having very poor sleep. Yeah. Um, mine, I think, stems from well, obviously the kids. That doesn't help, but. Um, previously, I think I used to tour a lot of the band and stuff like that, and I think late nights and the, the adrenaline and stuff after shoot yes. shows. So, so, I, yeah. so first, I don't know what band you were in. Do well, I don't. There weren't. No one knows who they were. Oh, well, well, <laughs> they were cool. well, you said it like I. Maybe, I thought, oh no, was he in Squeeze? Was he in, yeah, yeah. Was he in some big band? I never no, realised. No. no, no, we did. We got. We got to play. Just the way you said it. You know, yeah, I was yeah. touring with the band. I thought, yeah, yeah. Oh, no, yeah, yeah, child. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, it's fine. No, it's fine. Charles no one's Rolling Stones. Yeah. I have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. No, we were called Little Ten. Our, our little biggest, Ten. Little Ten. A little Ten. Yeah, and our biggest claim 
to fame was playing at Glastonbury. Oh, right. Which was pretty cool. Yeah. Um, little, yeah little, no, tent, little Tent is a good name. Little Tent would be a good game. Yeah. Well, for Glastonbury. Yeah, it'd be yeah. wouldn't it? And we were a festival band. Confusing as well, though, because yeah, people we, might have thought, well, I've got a small one, so I'll, I'll place it near where this <laughs> bit is. Oh, no, it's a band. Yeah. And you can only yeah. play the small tent. It's a big, it's a big, big, yeah, it's a big <laughs> sign saying Little Tent. And like, oh, no, it's not a bit different. Anyway. So, yeah, well, I I mean, you know, you're right anyway. Insomnia. Because actually, that's my point: is that I had terrible insomnia last two nights. It actually is to do with the same thing, which is I had to go to Salford to do BBC breakfast, and I knew I was getting up really early to do mm. that, so that stopped me sleeping. And then uh, the same day, I came back to London. And I did the Russell Howard show, and so that was really late, and I was yeah. still definitely adrenalised by the time I was going to sleep. So I had two nights of very bad sleep, Just, yeah. and then in ter- you're right. I mean, in terms of the part-time thing, I then slept much later this morning than I thought was going to. So, as a result, I haven't voted. Coming back yeah. to what we were actually talking about. Uh, but I am. I will vote. I realise that yeah. su- universal suffrage is a privilege. Have uh, <laughs> you noticed uh, that's what happens on social media after a while? Like, there's all this rowing about, you know, incredible anger about who you should vote for. Mm. And there's this strange, like, 1914 Christmas Day football thing that happens on the day, which is everyone just starts saying, well, anyway, whoever you vote for, yeah, just yeah. make sure you vote. It's a great privilege. People died for it. Did people die for it? Sorry, I'm just thinking this now. No, yeah. Right, did people actually die for that? I mean, people fought the Nazis. Yeah, right? yeah. And presumably the Nazis, you know, didn't allow voting. They just had a one-party system. Yeah, yeah. But there were lots of other things, I think, that the Nazis would have brought in, apart from you know, that, <laughs> yeah, that would have been yeah. a problem. So I'm not yeah. sure when people were fighting them, they were thinking, voting. That's yeah, what yeah, I'm yeah, fighting Yeah, that was for. their main thing. No, yeah. I'm not sure about <laughs> I'm that. I'm not sure either. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway. I've got, I was saying to Charles earlier, I've got a slight conundrum now, because where I live in Amersham and Buckinghamshire is like a proper Tory hotland. Oh. Always has been. Yeah. And last election, I tried to vote tactically. Yeah. For Lib Dem, didn't work. Labour had a big surge. Lib Dem went down. Right. So this election, I was like, I'm going to vote Green. It's a party I believe in. Yeah. I'm going to vote for, make my vote count. I yeah. just read this morning on social media that the Lib Dems might actually push my local Tory. Yeah. So now I'm like, yeah. should I actually vote tactically? Because I really want to. Ask, you're asking me. I'm completely screwed up about who to vote for myself. Yeah. Um, I mean, I would say yes, um, probably. Uh, yeah. I mean, I. I, I you know, I was going to vote green. Uh, I'm actually my vote, as you may imagine, is very coloured by uh, the whole anti-Semitism thing. Of course, yes. And because uh, I normally vote Labour, and I've chosen not to vote Labour. Yeah, but the interesting thing about that is I'm fully aware that, that you know all the parties have got issues with that. Obviously, the Tories have got issues with. They've just had three candidates yeah. nominated for that. But then the interesting thing is Lib Dems have got terrible issues with anti-Semitism. Right, Lib Dems have got this guy. Is he still with them? No. He, the, until very recently, they were the worst party, right? Because they had this guy, David Ward, who's a fuck-off anti-Semite, really. Not mm. sure you'll be allowed to say that, but he is. Uh, then they had Jenny Tong, who is this woman who... Yeah, again, yeah. They're independents now, but it took them years to actually get rid of them. So I thought Green, because I believe a mm. lot of things the Greens say, totally. Yeah. Uh, but I knew that would be a wasted vote anyway. But then a woman called Linda Grant, a very fine, you, you might see on Twitter, a very fine Jewish novelist, I think I mentioned somewhere I might vote green, and she direct messaged me and say, oh, "Have you looked at their record? There's loads of green to anti-Semites." At this point, I just think oh, the Jewish community—I just think well, the Jewish yeah, community yeah. should barricade itself <laughs> in the synagogue and just eat pickled herring because it's, like, it's clearly like, it's a terrible world out there. So I don't yeah. know, uh, but I um, was going. I'm going to vote. I still haven't decided. I'm going to vote either green or Lib Dem. Yeah. Uh, actually, it's a pretty safe Labour seat uh, where I am, uh, or it has been. Who knows? Who knows? Who yeah. knows? But it has been. So either way, the Tories aren't going to get in yeah so you know i'm glad about that mm. but uh you know it's just, it's just a nightmare it's a minefield isn't yeah. it 
It's yeah. a nightmare. It is. Um, and I, I do feel politically homeless, but I think the word homeless is a, a dodgy one to use because being homeless is a terrible thing. Being yeah. politically homeless, like, uh, you know, it's like much, much worse having no food uh, yeah. than it is saying, darling, I simply don't know who to vote for. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Just to make that clear. Going back to the insomnia stuff, do you find yeah. that um, hinders you creatively? Well, I think it's, that's a really interesting question because I think insomnia... Someone said, I can't remember who it was, Bertrand Russell, I think, said that uh, a man who is, is it lonely? That's the, he starts with that one. I can't even remember that one because the important one is what I'm going to come to. A yeah. man who is lonely or something, like a man who can't sleep, is always proud of the fact. So I can't remember what the first one was. Mm. Uh, but uh, it, as an, ins- an insomniac, is a, is, it's one of those negative hallmarks of being that are quite hard not to think of yourself as once you are them. Mm-hmm. So that's a very convoluted sentence. What I mean is, I have lived with being an insomniac for so long that I can't think of myself any other way. And I do, I think, definitely parlay it. And you kind of have to, because otherwise it's just a horrible thing. Yeah, it's yeah. something positive about myself. So I think, like, well, it is partly, I think, related to the fact that I am a creative person. Mm-hmm. It's hard to switch my brain off and blah, blah, blah. And it is true that I probably have had ideas at four o'clock in the morning. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know, some of them I've written down, I've looked at them in the, in the, in the actual yeah. morning and thought, what is that? <laughs> yeah. uh, I can't read it in any way. Now yeah. I have read it, it's yeah. clearly some nonsense about a balloon <laughs> or whatever. Yeah. Some map. But sometimes it isn't. Sometimes it is like stuff that I can use. So um, I don't know. I don't think so. I mean, on tour or like, you know, as I say, doing, doing a TV show or whatever, I do worry... Uh, Someone's being beaten up. Yeah. <laughs> um, I do. I do worry um, that I'm just going to be shit. Yeah. I'm tired. That happens yeah. a lot. I mean, uh, you know, I don't, you're a comedian, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I do know how your sleeping is, but well, I've got the level we call baby. Okay. Well, Sorry. that's bad as well. But I mean, I uh, on tour. I remember, like, I did a tour in 1997 when, for some reason, it was really terrible. Um, and my insomnia, I don't mean the tour. <laughs> um, and uh, just like lying awake thinking, I'm going to be so shit tomorrow night, you know, on the oncoming night uh, performance because I haven't slept for like three nights or whatever. Yeah. And somehow or other, Dr. Theatre sorts it out, but yeah. it is a, yeah, it is a, it is a weighs on your mind as a performer. I'm not sure as a writer, I think you can sort of, yeah, you can kind yeah. of get up and write whatever. I mean, basically, it's not good for your health, not sleeping in well, general. Well, no, exactly, yeah. yeah. And something else we, we, which we were probably going to talk about, which is my dad has dementia, um, which I talked about a lot in stand-up, and I did a documentary mm. about it, and I've written about it. Um, but it has the name of this podcast, yeah. and I did say to you when I arrived, what, yeah. what, what is it about, this podcast? <laughs> yeah. um, and I think you don't know. Uh, <laughs> we're still working out. Still working yeah. out. That's, it's a blank, yeah. what this yeah, podcast is. The episode yeah, yeah. quite worked out. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I've come to you now with what an actual thing yeah. that I would say blank is a very good word yeah. for what, the feeling of being with someone with dementia is that they've gone blank. Yeah. Um, I mean, actually, originally with my dad, it wasn't quite like that because I don't know if you saw, saw my show or... Uh, I saw the documentary. He, yeah. Right, but the show uh, that I did, which is more about my mum, but the bits about my dad are were about the type of dementia that he was diagnosed with, which is called Pick's disease, which is very much not blank. It's like mainly about disinhibition and right. mainly yeah, about yes, the fact yeah, that yeah. it turned what was always an incredibly sweary, aggressive man into an... <laughs> I'm astonishingly sweary, <laughs> aggressive man. So that it just felt like the opposite of the people saying, oh, we've lost him. Where's he gone? No, he's turned into a fucking <laughs> absolute caricature of himself. Yeah. Right, <laughs> And we have to deal with that now. Yeah. Uh, but that has now moved, not completely away. He's still pretty mm-hmm. sweary when, he, when he's there. But quite a lot of time he's just not there. 
you know, it's just like, you know, gone. Um, and uh, so that feels like a true blankness, like a true kind of human blankness at times. Um, and I worry about that in terms of like, coming back to insomnia, is that mm. like, I monitor my memory, which is just something that anyone with a parent who's got dementia does. Um, I, I, I have this thing. I talk to the audience about it in my new show, uh, whereby if I forget someone, how old are you? I'm 42. Okay, so you probably don't have that yet, and you're, you've looked oh, like 35. Okay, so you, neither of you will have this yet. So sorry, <laughs> you may not relate to this, but older listeners who you may have will relate to it, I think, because the audience do. My audience, who are generally a bit older, do. Uh, if I forget someone's name, they go on a list of names that I think, right, now I have to remember that name yeah. so that yeah. I know I haven't got dementia, right? Yeah. So I think on my name is Gil Scott Heron. If someone is on, my na- on that list, uh, Colin Farrell. Tamsin Uthwaite for some reason. <laughs> They're on my bank of names that I forgot at some point. Yeah. And now, you see, I called them up. That comforts me. Yeah. Comforts <laughs> right me there. that I don't have dementia, right? <laughs> and I asked you in the audience, you can see the older people all do it. You know, it's that weird thing that observational comedy shifts as you get older. <laughs> and, you know, it's a weird thing. So, but, but I've been on stage. In fact, it happened the other day on the Russell Howard show. And I've been ad-libbing and thought, oh, I don't remember who the reference point hmm. for this is. I remember the first time it happened to me, I was in Pocklington. Good, I can remember where I was, but I was in Pocklington and I forgot Jeremy Clarkson's name, right? And I was just improvising and I was going blah, blah, I can't remember what the gag was, blah, 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 but it was something like, who am I? And I wanted to say Jeremy Clarkson and I ended up saying, the bloke who presents Top Gear. Well, he used to present Top Gear. I thought, oh, that doesn't work. That doesn't work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've lost the rhythm completely. The so, audience is going, what, yeah. James Martin? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It doesn't work at all with Alex, yeah. So, you know, so it is a worry. It, it is a genuine blankness. Yeah. You know. And I was thinking with regards to dealing with your dad... Um, You've got a blankness, obviously, with him because yeah. you're having to do it. But yeah. also, obviously, Where so his own blankness as well, yeah. obviously, because of, his, of the condition he's got. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. No, that's true. I have a blankness in that there was this big space filled by my dad, which is still there. Mm. You know, and actually, one of the things I think needs to be clear, and I had said this a lot when I was doing that show and when I was doing my documentary, is that people need to need to remember that the person is still there and mm-hmm. that I think there's a sense with dementia that we instantly think, right, that's it, they're gone. Yeah. They are blank yeah. completely and, and there's a kind of blankness in the ledger of humanity. It's not true. Actually, well, certainly in my own experience, is that my dad is still there and he still is my dad. Um, it's just the, in pockets rather yeah. than all the time. Uh, but, yeah, that idea that once you get, once someone gets dementia, they're basically just turned to the wall I, yeah. I haven't experienced that, but, you know, yeah, certainly it, it, it's changed a lot uh, who he was, and there is, yeah, there is a blankness as, uh, yeah. uh, uh, where there was someone who was a very large figure in my life. Yeah. And that must be difficult, having known that person. Yeah, it is. For so long. And it's incredibly that difficult. This image of this, this person. Yeah, it's incredibly difficult. It's also, like, a friend of mine's dad died the other day, um, and he was saying about how he didn't have a particularly strong relationship with his dad, but he still felt, and I said, really disorientated, because he could, there was a blankness there, he couldn't quite find the word, and I said, and I said that's what I think you feel. Like, I don't know if your parents are still alive, both of you. Mine, mine have both passed away. Right, but, uh, you know, there's no question that my dad, you know, you know, he should be dead. I mean, that sounds like a cruel thing to say, mm. but I, I believe it. Mm. You know, essentially keeping someone alive like we do medically when, you know, yeah. th- they're long gone being the person they were, it makes no real sense, no. right? Mm. Um, and yet, even though when he dies, I will undoubtedly feel relief. 
because it's really complicated and really difficult and he can't do many things and all the rest of it and doesn't recognise me most of the time. Well, he sort of recognises yeah, me. Are there any mo- there well, moments? Well, well no, he's, no, he sort of recognises yeah. me. Oh, yeah, no, totally. Yeah, no, yeah. no, I mean, he sort of recognises me. He's not... My dad is not a vegetable, I should say, mm. but he is... You know, he sits in a chair all day. The telly is on. He's not in a home. He's a, we yeah, he's at home, we yeah. pay for him to have uh, care at home. But you know, he if I come in, he will smile because he knows that I'm someone he knows. Yeah. Uh, but if I say who am I, he won't know. And if I say I'm David, your son, he will often say no, you're not, because my dad thinks he's about thirty. Yeah. Yeah. If you ask him how old he is, he's 85. Uh, okay, he'll say, yeah. I don't know, about 30. right? And then, it, obviously, for me to be his son, I'm clearly a 55-year-old yeah, yeah. man. That's terribly <laughs> confusing. Right? Yeah, imagine, right, so yeah. he just says, you're not. I remember when we did that documentary, we brought an old mate of his called Lionel, someone he, in fact, fell out with in the 80s when Lionel sold him an Austin princess, which then broke down. And me and, me and my dad <laughs> never spoke again until my dad lost his memory. Yeah. Right? But Lionel, this bloke, his old mate from Swansea, turned up with he plays the clarinet it's a fucking hilarious scene in the documentary yeah, because I it should, that it should yeah. be beautiful but my dad is just really fucked off because he's playing the clarinet <laughs> too close to his ear <laughs> and he's like oh fuck <laughs> anyway anyway what 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 the bit i really loved is that lionel who is the same age as my dad and hasn't got dementia uh he says hello i'm lionel right and my dad says you don't look like him and lionel says no, I promise you, I do look like it. <laughs> but my, my dad's you know, mind yeah. is, is in, in about 1952. That's probably where he might remember some stuff. Yeah. You know, so, um, so anyway, you know, there will definitely be a relief. There will definitely be a sadness. But there will also be this just sense that happens when your parents die of like disorientation, as I say. Mm. It's a very large thing. And if you don't feel it as a large thing because you've taken them for granted for many years mm. and they're just mm. in your life when they go it is really disorientating yeah, that, is, that, yeah. that must be the case even for people like you say your friends who aren't maybe close to their parents yeah. they're still your parents no no i know i know and you have, it's 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 not exactly the straightforward thing of like you know if you lose someone who you are very close to it's just awful you know even when I, uh, people will probably hate me for this but I, I had to put my cat down monkey was my favorite cat oh, he was 20 years old that, yeah. yeah i was devastated i was yeah. so upset he was 20 2021, yeah. No, I mean, he had, yeah. he had a good life. Yeah. He was, you know, hey, it was time for Monkey to go. And <laughs> yeah. also, he was incontinent and had dementia, I'm pretty sure. Uh, but, you know, I was so devastated by doing it or whatever. Um, but I... So, he, there's that, but then there is this other thing, I think, where, where you... It's not just about sadness. It's not just about crying or whatever. It's about um, a part of you that you didn't realise was there... Mm when your parents die, which is that they sort of do live with inside you, even if you mm. don't even think about them, only see them at Christmas. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, your parents are both still alive, aren't yeah. they? Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, it's just something that, that you you realise. You realise how alive they were in you when they are dead. Mm. Yeah. And I, imagine that's, I think that's the same with a lot of relationships. Lot yeah, of maybe. There are people throughout your life that you yeah. don't maybe realise have affected you in a certain way yeah. or are still part of you Yeah. that you might not have spoken to for 30 years or something. Yeah, and they're yeah. still well, might have been with you at a important moment. Well, actually, probably, and, and this is quite good in terms of blankness as well, I think, I was thinking about this last night, about um, how for my generation, the death of big figures, which is really happening now, really happened over the last few years, um, it creates that feeling a bit as well. Mm. So when David Bowie died, you know... I felt disorientated. Yeah. I felt like I don't quite know how to think about the world anymore because mm-hmm. I so just assumed that that person would always be there in a way or at least that he's so is part of how I think of myself and, and the world that him not being there creates a sort of weird thing like the world isn't quite on its axis anymore. 
Yeah. Actually, something else about that, which is sort of not relevant to what we're talking about, but I think is interesting, mm. is my daughter at the time, she's now 18, but she's very, very, very musical, my daughter. And she had adopted Bowie in, when she, from the time she was about 12. I, I was passing by a room. I heard her, she'd worked out Space Oddity on her guitar and was playing it. I was incredibly proud. I was going to say, yeah, must have been Unbelievably proud of the fact that she loved David Bowie. But, but she's also quite obsessed with my daughter and she became obsessed with Bowie and knew everything about him. Knew, I mean, I, I, was, I was proud at first. Then I was a little bit pissed off because <laughs> I was like, what do you mean? Like, you know more about him than I do. <laughs> yeah. but I do a podcast about him, which, by the way, I can mention. Yeah. Uh, like, but she would. She just knew everything about him, and she's much more musical than me, so she could play all his songs and sing all his songs or whatever. And so when he died, uh, I remember uh, my wife calling me up. It was uh, I was asleep because I hadn't slept well, and she, as she often does, had sorted out the kids in the morning because I, I hadn't slept, uh, called me from downstairs and said, you've got to come down, David Bowie is dead. And I said, oh, God, that's terrible. And I felt my own disorientation, but my first thought was, What's Dolly going to be like? Yeah. Right? And she was really, really devastated. And then I realised something else, which is there's a certain young person who, because of the way culture is now, mm. is going to love old music, right? Yeah, yeah. And there's loads of them. You know, obviously, yeah. obviously loads of them like One Direction and loads of them like whatever, but loads of them like old music. And they're going to have to suffer something that we never had to suffer, which is their heroes dying when they're 13 yeah. or 40. Like, yeah. I remember they had to set up helplines when Take That split up. Right? <laughs> but think about their dead. Right? Like, yeah, yeah. You know, a bloody teeny bopper has to deal with the fact that their idol has died of liver cancer. I mean, that's terrible. Yeah. You know? So, you know. uh, I'd not thought about that. Yeah. When, you know, when Bowie died, he'd just released that album, hadn't he? For uh, Blackstar, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it, was, it was literally two days before he died, yeah, yeah. And it was so good. I had that moment where I thought, that's better than anything I'm ever going to make in my whole life. And he was dying, and <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> he made it. Yeah. No, well, I know, yeah, but here's David Bowie. And yeah, actually, yeah. actually, I was talking about this on my podcast about Bowie, which apparently Elton John. Uh, quite recently, when his book came out, was talking about Bowie and their slightly difficult relationship that they had. Uh, but he said one thing about Blackstar, which is he said, he said it uh, was amazing the way that he did that with his death. He said, I think that's a lesson for everyone, that that's how you should try and make your own death. And I thought... Okay, everyone, Elton, because everyone does not have a huge catalogue of incredibly important albums that they can, you know, put that in context with. And then when they're dying, yeah. get hold of an avant-garde jazz band to do an amazing last one. You know, most people are just lying on the floor with pushing a panic button. Yeah. Funerals would be awful, yeah. wouldn't they? Just on loads of shit music yeah. for hours. Yeah. Oh, it'd be awful. Yeah. No, I think Elton is the thing when he says everyone. I think, like, yeah. it's really hard for most people to do, to do their death like Bowie did. <laughs> now, going back, which we normally do in this oh, podcast, right. you grew up in North London. I did, yeah. I was born in America. Yes, um, New York, was it? New York State. I mean, it sounds okay, much yeah. more glamorous than it is. Uh, basically, there was a thing in the 60s called the brain drain, where mm -hmm. my, um, I can't, I don't exactly know why, actually, but for various reasons, uh, people who had jobs, normally in sciences, uh, which my dad did at the time, were uh, there were incentives for them to go to America because 
more money or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so my dad, who had a PhD in biochemistry, ended up teaching uh, in a, a upstate New York uh, in a polytechnic. It's called Rosselaer Polytechnic Institute in New York. But it was very upstate, so it was actually near uh, Albany, uh, which is, I think, the capital of New York State. I think it is, yeah. Yeah, and I, I was born there or near there in a place called Troy. It's very, very unglamorous. It's not like Manhattan. Mm. Um, and I came back after about four months because my parents had me and my older brother. They were there for four years, three or four years, um, and then came back to London. And then, yeah, spent my... I lived in a flat I don't remember in a very grotty part of Maida Vale for a bit, but then we. my main memory is growing up in Dollis Hill, which yes. is a... Un, I mean, unbelievably dull and mundane part of North West London. Um, and that, I think when people talk about my, when I think about my upbringing, that's the main thing I think about it. It was like dull. Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, it was incredibly 70s. It was incredibly dull. Uh, we were, I would say, lower middle class um, and Jewish. Uh, and I remember being at my, I got for my bar mitzvah, I got uh, an electric guitar, uh, a Columbus Stratocaster. I think it cost nice. 50 quid. Yeah, yeah. Um, and because uh, I wanted to be a rock star, that's what I wanted to be. Um, and uh, a footballer, then rock star, then comedian. Um, <laughs> and I remember, <laughs> yeah, but I remember telling someone at my school that I had an electric guitar and he didn't believe me because uh. my world was so cut off <laughs> from the glamorous world of Top of the Pops and pop music and whatever. It was so like another universe that the idea of even having an electric guitar seemed unbelievable. <laughs> um, so Did you have an amp as well? Well, I, eventually I got an amp. Yeah. Yeah, I like, they didn't that's the thing. Isn't it? I remember getting my first electric guitar and I was yeah. like, oh... <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, did, I think I didn't realise myself that you needed an amplifier. But, uh, you yeah, know, there's a place in Hendon I got it from. Oh, okay. Yeah, uh, yeah. I wish I could remember the name of the shop because I was, was so it? excited. my first guitar was a Stratocaster. I think it was uh, Sunburst. Okay. Oh, yeah. I think That's it was it. Sunburst. Hendrix Columbus. Style, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then eventually I got, this is going to become slightly nerdy now because yes, you're a musician, yeah. but a Tivoli amplifier. Okay, yeah, yeah. Second hand, and it had an incredible distortion switch yeah, on the amplifier. Yeah. And it was really loud, and my parents hated, hated me playing it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, then I did, I was in various bands when yeah. I was a kid, and uh, one of my uh, closest friends and oldest friends, in fact, the guy, probably shouldn't mention this because it's, it's the guy whose dad died, and I said he wasn't that close to his dad. Anyway, it, it's my <laughs> oldest friend, David Gavrin, who went on to be in a band called The Sundays. Oh, right, yeah, yeah. Um, and so he was much, again, much more talented musically than I was, but I was in a band with him. Uh, for a long time uh, but anyway yeah I had a very uh, mundane childhood were any of your band names as good as Big Tent Little Tent oh Little Tent oh my god although Big Tent is a better name it's a better, yeah, name. It's a better name than Little Tent now that we're you know. it's something to aspire to exactly exactly you got a few more members yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, well I can tell you the name of our uh, band name so uh, I think we were originally called interestingly Room 101 which I think was also maybe one of the Clash's names. Was it? No, they were the 101ers. 101ers, yeah. yeah. Uh, so we're Room 101, obviously well before the TV show, although quite a long time after George Orwell. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so I can't claim yeah, it. Yeah. Um, then we, I remember we were The Odd. The Odd? I think okay. The Odd is quite a good name, yeah, yeah, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, For a like sort of that. like late 70s, yeah. sort of punky new wave band. Is that what you were aspiring to, like that kind of music? Oh, yeah, we, yeah. we were. Although I remember at one point Dave, who wrote most of the songs, had got a bit over-influenced uh, by the police. Okay. And started so singing, reggae, started singing in a kind of white reggae accent, <laughs> which I think he probably would like to yeah, ignore yeah. now. Um, but yeah, uh, then then uh, I think things went a bit because the odd was probably the best name. But I remember we dropped that and became we dropped we kicked out the bass player, decided to reform as Intro Exit. 
which is still okay, not yeah, bad. It's good. It's good. Yeah, still not bad. My first band was called Beach in November. Oh, that's awful. Which is just that sounds dreadful. like a that sounds like a book that didn't win the Booker Prize. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like did all right, right? Was sort of long listed, yeah. but then in the end, it was yeah. a bit too airy fairy. <laughs> yeah. There's yeah, a, a there's a woman thing. on the cover in a flowery dress walking down a beach. It's a bit windswept, <laughs> looking in the far distance. I think it's good. Beach <laughs> in November. What yeah, kind of music I was think it? You, Oh, it was kind of grungy. I think. Oh, was it? Well, yeah, that's the yeah. wrongest name possible. Yeah, I know. That's and I think more like electronic, I think it's electronica we lived or in something. Single. Either electronica or maybe yeah. folky. Yeah, folky. You know, yeah. Sort of slightly folky. I think slightly it was like, anti-folk. We were, <laughs> whatever. Because that's what we we formed in November. Oh, right. We all lived by the beach. I see. So, Bit literal. Is, yeah. Too I literal. Would say too literal. literal. <laughs> I was also <laughs> literal to it. So it's just shit. Yeah, shit. I was also in a band at school. A separate band. This okay. was probably before I was in the slightly more serious band with Dave Gavrin. Uh, and uh, I was in with Mark Commode. Ah, and he, and he okay. talks about this wow. in his book. Yeah, He's yeah. got a book out which is about trying to yes, be a pop yeah, star. Yeah, yeah. Right? And, uh, was he playing bass then? I don't, I, yeah, I think so. Well, he was singing, I think. Oh, okay. I think he was singing uh, and I was playing guitar. And I did write some of the In fact, Mark remembers it all. I mean, I'd forgotten most of it, but he, <laughs> like, you know, book. in his book says things like, so you wrote Singing the Blues Again. I thought, <laughs> what? <laughs> I said, like, hey, that sounds terrible. Like a young Jewish bloke from North London writing a song called Singing the Blues Again. How awful. Um, and, it, and all these other songs that, uh, that we did, I don't okay. remember any of them. Um, so and it was a sort of bluesy, rockabilly kind of... Was, no, I think it was also a bit new wave. It was oh, called okay. The Spark Plugs, uh, which I think is... Sounds like a pub rock band. Yeah. Mm. Um, and probably it was a bit of a pub rock band because mm. this was a bit earlier before punk had properly happened. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I certainly was still wearing flares oh, okay. when this happened. Uh, later on, I was wearing tight drain pipe jeans. <laughs> yeah. uh, but, um, see, we have a slight difference of opinion about this, Mark, because Mark, who's a very sweet bloke and writes very sweetly about it uh, in his book... Uh, my memory is that I came to school one day and Mark and the other people in the band said that we're, we're breaking up the band, it's not really going anywhere. And I was like, oh, okay, yeah, you're probably right. And then the day after, they'd formed another band without me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But he, I, I would say he disputes that. Oh, that it was a, he, I think he says maybe it was two days later. <laughs> but um, yeah, that's, that's what I believe happened. That's but quite brutal, isn't it? It was quite brutal. But, yeah. but uh, the truth is, you know, even though I have had four number ones, uh, I was never really destined to be a pop star. And it's probably, <laughs> yeah. you know, in the end, it was tough love. It was good for me. Yeah. <laughs> I, to I to al- find my calling elsewhere. Yeah. I also wanted to be, same as you, rock star, footballer, yeah. rock star, yeah. comedian. Yeah. Still, tr- still would love to be a rock star. Still trying to be a comedian. And um, football, you've given up on it. Football. Yeah. I'm 35 well, now. Officially. Player manager. Could yeah. be a player manager. You hold on to it, don't you? For yeah. a while, player manager. Yeah. Yeah. Do you remember that old? Um, who was it? Uh, Brian Robson when he was at yeah. Middlesbrough. The yeah. player manager thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The yeah, the, the, yeah, yeah there's yeah. quite a few. You think actually, although. You, it's gone now, player manager. Yeah, it? people like, don't do that. It's people very 90s. don't do. Well, I think it's more than that. I think it's seventies as well. Yeah. Uh, I think probably the level of fitness required yeah. now to be yeah. a footballer <laughs> yeah. means that you can't be forty and think I'll go on. Yeah. yeah. I'll, go, I'll go yeah. on. Yeah. The yeah. lads aren't doing too well. I'll, I'll go on. No. I'll share that. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. No. But, um, I've never got to be in a band. Really never. wanted to be. Never got to be in a band. Oh. But when I was at school, I was in a three-piece parody group, and we oh, wow. parody. Popular songs. I can't remember what her name what was. What does that mean? Parody. What so we take normal like, songs like, and change the lyrics. Okay. Do you know? Are you too young to have heard of the Baron Knights? 
Yeah. Okay, so that was an yeah, actual was, thing, yeah, thing. Actual thing in the seventies. A band that did that yeah. right. called the Baron Knights. They were really weird-looking <laughs> bunch of men, led yeah, by good. a guy called, Same as us. Called, called Peanut. I remember his name. Uh, he looked a bit like a peanut. And they had actual hits uh, yeah. where they would do medleys, in which a bit of the medley would be, oh, this is a Rolling Stones song, but with silly lyrics. This is a Beatles song with silly lyrics or whatever. Yeah, amazing. I mean, at a time so we when novelty songs, <laughs> novelty songs don't really exist anymore. But no, they, it's they, a shame they don't really. They, but they really did in the seventies. I yeah, mean, yeah. so many. Of them. So tell me what you well, don't remember. The what your difference called? between us and the Baron Knights was um, we had no hits. Right, yeah, no hits. Unfortunately, yeah. but you were doing pastiches. Of, we did of three, and one of them was Wonderwall. Okay, I can't remember the other one. Hang on, before you go any further. Well, yeah, yeah. So, what was your funny version of Wonderwall? I can't remember. You can't remember. I can't remember. I think you've gone blank deliberately. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I really want to know what your funny version of Wonderwall was. It was, it was, was probably recorded. about football because I was obsessed right. with football at the time. Well, it rhymes, doesn't it? It was something about Millwall, possibly. Oh, uh, Millwall. Poss- I can't yeah. remember. But you're my Mill- Millwall. <laughs> <laughs> doesn't yeah. you know how that scans? But the other song we did. You're my team. I can see Millwall. Why you Still working on it. The other song we did was Three Lines. Oh, you've got to tell me what you... I I think we just changed the lyrics to, like, take the piss out of footballers. I remember there was a line about Ali McCoyst being shit. That's the only thing I can remember. Right, okay. Um, But, yeah, that was the first... Because there's been many parodies of it since, uh, and actually many genuine reworkings of it, because it's... I don't know all these, but there's like versions of it in Germany and Brazil and blah blah blah. Oh, amazing! Like there's no, yeah. a sort of Latin version. Yeah, there is a Latin version of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's clubs that sort of adopt it yeah, all yeah. over the world and do their own versions of it. Um, and most famously, after immediately after the after Euro '96, Germany basically took yeah. it in a, an incredibly <laughs> yeah. blithe. I mean, you know, this is going to sound very xenophobic, but hey, I'm half German, yeah. so I think I can <laughs> yeah. say this, uh, which is that they just thought, we've won the tournament, we will have the song. <laughs> yeah. you know, we'll take and, everything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and so, you know, they, were, they went to number 17 on the German charts oh. immediately after Euro 96. <laughs> yeah, amazing. Yeah, Not even a German version. <laughs> yeah, that's the EU for you. <laughs> So, music didn't work out. No. Well, not until much later yeah, on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, yeah. but no, uh, yeah. Time, no. So, but you were quite an academic, though. I mean, yeah, well, yeah. if I hadn't have been a comedian, yeah. that is what I would have been, I think. Because at the end of the day, I have to now admit I wasn't good enough to be a footballer. I still play football, yeah. but it's clear to me I wasn't good enough. <laughs> uh, and, yeah, clearly couldn't sing. Uh, uh, so, I, I was good with language. Mm. You know, I've always, that's my thing, really, is words. And when people say to me, which they sometimes do, <coughs> oh, you do so many things, they say, I think, no, I don't. I'm not like a comedian and a plumber. What yeah. I am is a comedian, I'm a storyteller yeah. in various different forms. So, obviously, that involves stand-up comedy, but also, you know, writing books, writing kids' books, uh, doing documentaries, you know, anything like that is storytelling. And it's primarily language. I mean, language and visuals, but, you know, still about language. Uh, and that is what I can do, and I think so. Therefore, the other job was yeah, academic in English literature, which I I read loads. I did have this very dull childhood, so I read loads, uh, and I was good at that. I was good at uh, you know working out what stuff meant in books. <laughs> Even that sounds an incredibly bald way of saying it. Like you clearly can't use language, but that is true. I'm good at that. Uh, and so that is how I ended up at Cambridge and doing a PhD, in fact, which I uh, really did because I didn't have any money. And at that time, unbelievably, the government would give you money yeah. to go to university. <laughs> uh, and so I was doing a PhD at London University after Cambridge, but at the same time I was doing the 
comedy store and stuff. Yeah, so how did so, you get into the comedy stuff? Was that just an interest of you? No, no, no. I, what happened was, I mean, this is, I have told this story is, uh, a few times, but, you know, you don't know. So, um, <laughs> is that I was at my school. Mm. Uh, so I'd got a scholarship to go to this school, Haberdashers, which is, is in, in L Street. And it's mm. not really a posh school. It's a sort of very bourgeois school, I would say. And most of the people I knew there were, lived in kind of L Street and Bushy and or Hampstead Garden suburb. Quite a lot of them were Jewish. And they had... They had more money, but they weren't posh. Um, but I, my dad had been made redundant by the time I got there. He got made redundant from Unilever, where he was a chemist uh, and was working in a, a, a dink, selling dinky toys in an antiques market, making no money at all. And back then, there was this thing called direct grant, which the uh, I can't remember if it was Labour or Conservative government, which meant you got means tested. Uh, you okay, get means yeah. tested to go to independent schools. So that's what happened. I got a scholarship and then we were means tested. My parents didn't pay any money for me to go to this school, right? So one of the traditions at this school was uh, in the last, uh, the sixth form, would put on a show at the last days of the summer term every year. And every year it was totally shit. <laughs> it was basically songs about the school rubbish. Kids would be not listening, sometimes throwing things. It would be utter shit. And for reasons that now I don't know, I cannot remember, they're lost in the midst of time, because I wasn't particularly like, oh, yeah, like David, he's really funny at school. Mm-hmm. Definitely not. Uh, I, I was probably a bit shy. Uh, but for some reason, now escapes me, I was asked to write that with one of the other blokes at school. And I thought, I guess this has been a constant in my career a bit. When I come to think of it now, when people talk about Three Lions, I often say, well, I think what happened was, and the reason it worked, is that when me and Frank Skinner sat down to write that song, instead of what seemed to have happened in the past, which is nothing to do with what it is actually like being an England fan, so Mm. people would write things like, this time more than any other time, we sat down and said, what is it actually like, the experience of being an England fan? It's quite shit. (laughs) So let's write a song about how it's mainly shit, (laughs) and yet somehow we keep believing. That's really what the lyrics are. And it now occurs to me for the first time, that's what I did with the 6S review at Haberdashers, which is I said, let's not write songs about how jolly life is at this school. Let's write sketches, sorry, not songs, sketches, Mm. about how we fucking hate these teachers. (laughs) And that's what I did. I wrote a series of sketches, incredibly scurrilous sketches, about teachers that everyone fucking hated. And it absolutely stormed it. <laughs> For the first time ever, the 6S review. I mean, I remember, I'd never done any performing. It's still one of the best gigs I've ever done. Right? I remember being on a sketch in which the Christian librarian was fucking a uh, blow-up doll on the photocopier <laughs> and, and hearing laughter, like, I've, you know, I have heard it since, but yeah, yeah. unbelievable laughter. Anyway, it got banned. It was, meant to, it was meant to run all week. It got immediately banned. 30 years ago, they've still not brought it back. Oh, I occasionally meet kids from that school who say you're the reason why we don't have a six four show. Right? Right? I know it's brilliant, um, but I didn't get expelled partly because that school is obsessed or was obsessed, probably still is, with getting kids into Oxford and Cambridge, and they right, knew I was okay. going to. I already had a place there, yeah. so they didn't want to expel me because then I yeah. wouldn't be on their list of kids. Get out of jail for yeah, so I got into a lot of trouble. Like I had to see the head teacher and blah blah blah, but I didn't get expelled, and I was cool. For the yeah. first time mm. at school, and then I thought, oh, I should do this, yeah. right? So when I went to Cambridge, I, I basically was in Footlights, yeah. uh, and I did that, and that was very instructive and really fun, but actually nothing to do with how I became a comedian either, because by the time I came out of that in the mid-'80s, everyone hated Footlights. Like, mm. I think this is myth that, uh, like, because um, a lot of Monty Python and people yeah, like that, yeah. and sort of slightly later on, Clive Anderson and people like that, mm. became came out of Footlights, and then later on from me, 
Mitchell and Webb and um, uh, Miller and Armstrong and Miller yeah, yeah, and people yeah. like that and, and Mel and Sue. They all went for it. But in the mid-period of that, 1986, when I came out, when Ben Elton and Alexi Sayan and people like that were absolutely kings of comedy, the thing they most hated was the Cambridge Footlights. Yeah. <laughs> and so it was sort of... You know, I remember, like, not only could you not get into telly, I phoned up the comedy store and they said to me, like, I'd never done a gig there before, I said, can I get an open spot? And they said, have you done any comedy before? And I said rather proudly, I was vice president of the Cambridge Footlights. They put the phone down. So, so I had to forget all that and just start again, really. Uh, but that was still good for me, really, because it meant that I spent four years on the cabaret circuit, which was pretty rough in the late 80s. <laughs> uh, but it was good, I think. Yeah, so you had to really go out and prove yourself. Well, no, the first, yeah, yeah. first gig I did at the comedy store was at three o'clock in the morning. There'd been a massive fight in the audience before I went on. Steve Frost, who's a brilliant comedian, yeah, yeah. said, spent ages calming them down and then said, and now David Baddiel, and it was like playing to dead people. <laughs> it was like playing to absolute zombies. And now I think about that now, I don't know how I managed to come back yeah. and keep going. I mean, mm. gigs early on when I started, I now think there is no way at 55 that I would have the drive to get through that and keep going. But back then, for some reason, youth did it. Youth yeah. and some sense of... I'm going to say the word destiny. That is a completely the wrong word because I don't really believe in that. Mm. But I, but you can believe in it yourself, if you see what yeah, I mean. Yeah, I yeah. don't believe it in an objective sense. I certainly don't believe it was written in the stars. <laughs> Could you imagine yeah. Jupiter and Mars <laughs> thinking, I think that boy, that Jewish boy, he should be a comedian. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, I don't believe in that at all. Yeah, yeah. But I, you can you can make of it in your own yeah, yeah. sense of I, I, I need to do this. And did you visualise yeah, that yeah. as well, though? Like the, the, you'll be, you know, I guess so. These I, and, well, and I don't know if forward. I knew that I would, but I, I definitely... When I was on the London Cabaret Circuit, which I was on for like three or four years before I really broke through, so I'm doing lots and lots of tiny shit gigs and going to places like the Tunnel Club, which were unbelievably hard or whatever. I, something must have kept me going, and it must have been a, a sense of like there is something beyond this. Yeah, yeah. you know, and I, you know, I did do well. Quite, I mean, from that gig at the Comedy Store, by you know, sort of 14 months later, I was comparing the comedy store. And I remember, I still think of that as one of my proudest moments as a comedian. I've done lots of stuff since, but I remember Kim Kinney, who's now sadly no longer with us, but who used to run the comedy store, coming into the comedy store dressing room and saying, look, I want, I want you to compare next week. And I remember thinking, that's, that's brilliant. You know? um, so, yeah, so that was kind of where I found what I should be doing. Were you able to find that person and put the phone down on you? (laughs) (laughs) It was probably Kim Kidding. I probably didn't realise. I should have said, yeah, you see, you see. But But I think there's definitely a sense of when things are hard and you're being creative, knowing deep down this this probably is what I'm supposed to be doing. I don't know if that's true, though. You know, uh, you see, what does that mean I'm supposed to be doing? There's a brilliant bit in Fever Pitch. Uh, It's incredibly sad bit but it's also brilliant uh, about a footballer called Gus Caesar who played for Arsenal um, and Nick Hornby talks about how he wasn't, wasn't that great but he was, seemed to be kind of okay, he was a fullback or something and then there was one game and I can't remember who the player was but there was one game where a player on the other side the side that wasn't Arsenal who was really good, who's ne- I can't remember who that was but n- started noticing that Gus Caesar wasn't good enough and started basically bullying him, not like sort of taking him out, but just beating him, putting nutmegging him, completely making him look like a fool. And Gus Caesar never really regained his place on the Arsenal mm. side. But, but what Nick Hornby writes about is how good Gus Caesar must have been 
Yeah. He must have been absolutely brilliant at football to get that far by most people's standards and yet still not quite good enough. And then he says this incredibly devastating line about how to be that good and to be in that frame. He must have had the idea that his destiny and his talent to be a footballer, he says it must be coursing through his veins like heroin. He says, and it means nothing at all. Yeah, right? no, it's incredibly is, yeah. devastating, but I think it's correct. You know, you might feel like my destiny is to be a comedian. I might feel that. But it's a whole bunch of fucking luck and uncertainty and to some extent whatever you call fate or, you know, and timing that that means that happens or it doesn't happen. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Mm. He must have been so good at every other team. That's right. Yeah, go and have a look at it. It's a fantastic bit of writing uh, in Fever Pitch about exactly that, about how he must have been the best at school, the yeah. best in his youth team, the best at sort of whatever Arsenal level he went into and still not quite good enough. Yeah, it's Sorry, Gus, yeah. if you're listening. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm rethinking really on my life choices as well. Well, you know, I, I think things are slightly... In a way, one thing might, might be slightly different now, um, not for a footballer, actually, because it's probably the only place where it's still absolutely cut and dried like whether you should be doing something or you shouldn't be doing something perhaps is sport but in terms of like the cultural world now there is of course this what we're doing now you Mm. see what I mean like this didn't exist as an opening podcasting when I was doing comedy so now I think what is probably quite good is that you know you don't have to necessarily be that person who has to masculine it up against drunk people at the comedy store to prove you're a comedian. Because I don't in any way think that means you're a comedian or it doesn't. I don't like that. I think there are lots of other ways of being funny or saying stuff that isn't that. And I think the world now does offer more more of a panoply of ways in which you can be funny than it did back then. Mm. Yeah, there used to be a bit of a structure, didn't there? Well, and also it it was quite... brutal and quite certainly in the cabaret circuit it was like you had to sort of prove yourself in quite a male quite a macho way and i sort of could do that but i don't necessarily think that's always a good thing yeah so a lot of people probably would have come out of that unscathed would they they'd be there's probably a whole host of really talented people that just didn't make oh definitely definitely there were there were loads of people and 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 that's why it took so long for women i think yeah even with alternative comedy being this like oh yeah we're not supposed to be no longer this kind of like male dominated Mm. blah 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 and obviously it did loads of things to overturn what comedy was in this country in the 70s but the reason it took so long for certainly female stand-ups to come through is it was still a very male-dominated environment, I think. Mm. Yeah. Ask me another question. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to say, after you started writing for other people as well, didn't you? I think uh, well, was, yeah, that with that roundabout there. Yeah, I, I mean, I did a bit. I wrote for Spitting Image. I wrote yeah. for Smith & Jones. Uh, I wrote... I can't remember uh, who else I wrote for. Oh, yeah, it's, it's, it says on my CV that I wrote for Rory Bremner. I can't remember, remember doing that. any <laughs> sketches. And the thing I mainly yeah. did, which was much more important mm. than all that, was there was a Radio 4 show mm. called Weekending. Yes, yeah. Um, and it was a satirical comedy show, not hilariously funny. But what it did have was an open-door policy to writers, mm. which is, there should still be something like that. Yeah. It's an amazing thing. You can There's li- Newsjack now, isn't there, I think, uh, you can pitch. But I'd, um, oh, can you? Uh, what's, what's, is that on Radio 4? What's it on? I think it's, I think it's Radio 4. Okay, well, that sounds like the same sort of thing. Yeah. So what they would have with the week ending, which was basically it was on Friday nights, and it was uh, sketches about the week's news, yeah. is they had commissioned writers uh, who were on contract and, as it were, proper, and then they had a meeting on Wednesdays where anyone could turn up and pitch individual ideas for comedy sketches about the week's news. So I was on the cabaret circuit, not, you know, I was doing all right on the cabaret circuit, but I didn't have much money or whatever, and I turned up to that. 
and started writing and met Rob Newman there. Well, I, to be honest with you, it's quite a long story with him. I'd met Rob Newman at university. Rob Newman, I think, who uh, probably doesn't include this so much in his CV, went to Cambridge. Mm. Um, and he was also he was from quite an underprivileged background, but he had got, ended up at Cambridge, uh, but then left. Um, and last I heard of him at Cambridge, he'd gone to live in Toxteth, which is a weird thing to do in the 80s. But anyway, yeah. Um, yeah. But he was actually <laughs> yeah. in a short film I made at Cambridge. I made a short film at Cambridge. Oh, okay. Rob Newman is in it. Um, and I hadn't seen him for ages. And then I saw him at a weekending meeting and thinking, oh, that's that weird bloke I met at Cambridge. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm a bit frightened of him. What's he doing here? But I noticed he had some really good ideas for sketches. And mm. because we didn't know each other, we ended up writing together. And then we became commission writers on Weekending. Mm-hmm. Uh, then we started writing for other radio shows. And then we got asked to do the Mary Whitehouse experience yeah. on uh, Radio 1, in fact. Mm. So that was a much more important process than writing little bits and pieces for telly. Do you enjoy that collaboration? I do, but I also yeah. think particularly as I've got on, uh, I think it's very important for me to write by myself. Uh, I think that writing comedy with another person is mm. actually a very, very complicated thing to do yeah. and can lead to the breakup of that friendship, <laughs> yeah. let me tell you. Yeah. Um, and uh, certainly like, one of the things you have to do when you write comedy with someone else, you have to be able to say, that's not funny. Mm-hmm. And I have been in rooms with men who really don't like you saying that and take it as a personal insult rather than a creative comment. Yeah. And, uh, you know, basically look at you like, don't you dare tell me what is this isn't funny. And you're like, well, I have to be able to do that if we're going to write a comedy sketch together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, some of the stuff you're suggesting is funny and this stuff isn't funny. And it's a really, really complicated relationship. And I was, I'm certainly still really collaborative, but I don't anymore have a central writing relationship that I write comedy with. And I'm really glad of the ones that I had, but I'm actually really glad... Mm not to be in them now so that I can write the stuff I, I want to write now. But you also have to be open to other people saying that's not funny about your stuff as well. But I was always quite open about that. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to paint myself as always the reasonable one, but I think I was. <laughs> <laughs> I was because, because if someone can, if someone can, I mean, it still might hurt, but if someone can say to you, this is why, because as you'll know, there are sort of like, mm. uh, within writing comedy, there is actually technical things you can say where here's why that joke doesn't work, and maybe if it's like this, it'd be whatever. And if someone can do that, then that is, you know, I like that. It's mm. really helpful and collaborative and whatever. But sometimes it just devolves into, you know, people getting really angry with each other. Um, and so, yeah, so now I'm happier in general writing by myself. And certainly the shows that I've done over the last sort of eight years, I've done three shows. One is about fame and one is about my family. And this new one is about social media and trolls and rage and whatever. They are, I would say, the closest that I've got to being who I am on stage, which is something I'm slightly obsessed with. Mm. I'm slightly obsessed in my life with being who I am. I know that sounds like an odd thing to be obsessed with, but I think... You know, I was reading uh, yesterday in a book about Joni Mitchell. Uh, I was reading the author say Joni was, she, he's quoting T.S. Eliot, was creating a face to meet the faces that she meets, and he says, which we all do. And I think I spend my life trying not to do that. Yeah. I, I really find it like important to me to try and be who I am, kind of wearily, I think, <laughs> for lots of people. But that's what I'm very interested in, in always being who I am. It's why I'm a shit actor. Uh, I mean, I can act only if I'm playing a version of myself. <laughs> I'm quite yeah. good at that. But the minute someone says, I mean, I can't even do any accents. Like, how shit is that for a mm. comedian? Like, I, I'm often quite jealous when I watch almost any other comedian. <laughs> yeah. uh, and they yeah. just do a bit in which they think, right, now I'm doing a Scottish accent or now I'm doing an American. I think I can't do that. 
I'm so limited, is what I think. But what I know about myself is the reason I can't do that is actually quite deeply psychological, which is I don't like moving an inch away from myself. Mm. And doing another voice feels to me like doing that, and I can't do it. I feel deeply uncomfortable trying to do so it. So do you think you... I mean, I'm also shit yeah. at it. But, you know, but, you know, I've made it sound yeah. good. But do you think for many years you, you oppressed that a little bit? How do you mean? Well, in, when you were doing work with, you know, say with uh, Rob Newman... Uh, no, I don't think I, I repressed it, but I think it is almost impossible to be 100% yourself mm-hmm. when you're in a double act. Yeah. Because you, you're always thinking about the other person or whatever. Uh, and no, I mean, I think that I was still being myself, but mm-hmm. not in this complete way that I think I can be now, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I do feel more like that on stage now, yeah, than when I was doing that mm-hmm. stuff. But I still, you know... Uh, I also think you're younger, and it's life is a process of understand yeah, uh, understanding yeah, yeah. who you are, and it takes a while, yeah. quite a long while. Yeah, <laughs> you know. but, but obviously you're in a place now where you're a lot happier doing that and being well, confessional uh, a bit more. Yeah, well, no, I was always confessional, yeah. always confessional. And, you know, the stand-up I was doing at the comedy store in the 80s was very confessional, mm-hmm. and actually that was part of a more general thing, which is that, um, you know, People sometimes say to me, oh, you know, you're part of this new ladism thing in the 90s or mm-hmm. whatever. And actually, although that was what it was called, what it really was, was when I started doing comedy, everyone was political. Yeah. Like, everyone I looked around was talking about the miners and Thatcher and whatever, mm-hmm. often brilliantly. But I just thought, I don't want to do that. I want to do something that's different. So I wasn't going to do right-wing comedy, but the other place to go was into myself. Yeah. So I was doing stuff about sex yeah. and football and just shit stuff that had happened to me in my life yeah and, you know, and, and children yeah, yeah and yeah. childhood and jewishness and yeah. blah 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 so th- that became that kind of comedy um which is quite american influence really mm. a kind of a stand-up who just talks about themselves and that turned out to be in its own way political with a small p because mm. it was saying okay it's not just going to be social comedy mm. you know and um, that, but I mean, that style obviously blew up. And, and being a bloke, I mean, I guess that's yeah, where the yeah, lads yeah, and stuff yeah. is. A part of it was about being a bloke. Yeah. Yes. So I would talk about pornography or yeah. whatever in this very unvarnished way. Uh, and for me, that was just about talking about me. Yeah. Right? But it became taken as this like like movement, this weird new laddish yeah. thing. And for for a while, that was quite good. And then it got completely like as everything does, really cor- yeah. corporatized. Well, yeah. And I was going to say, I mean, you did obviously you did. Big stadiums and yeah. stuff, you know. Yeah. That, and that must have been quite strange. Did it feel strange? Never stadiums, actually. Never stadiums. Oh, sorry, arenas. Sorry, arenas. Sorry, arenas. Sorry, sorry, yeah. yeah. I think sometimes people say, oh, yeah, you did stadium, Wembley. Yeah. And I think like, we never Wembley did Wembley yeah. Stadium, right? Yeah, slightly smaller, that, yeah. And that would have been a weird comedy. Yeah. I, don't know, I don't know who's done Wembley. Well, <laughs> Smith and Jones, I believe, did Live Aid. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but that aside, uh, I, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, those were amazing things yeah, to do. Yeah. I think they were mainly amazing things to do rather than, you know, um, brilliantly, uh, you know, I don't think of the gig that me and Rob did at Wembley as being our best moment, comically. Mm. It was kind of crazy and mad and, and, and a moment, but actually me and Rob, if you want to watch us, we did a, a, a video before that called History Today, which is yeah, based yeah. on our famous sketch, but also has got us both doing stand-up at Edinburgh Playhouse, which is a 3,000-seater, and we're both better. Yeah. We're both yeah, doing yeah. better work yeah. there than we are at Wembley Arena, which is a bit mental. Mm. Um, so um, I also can't do accents right, okay, that's um, good. or okay. act either so good. I'm relating so hard <laughs> okay I'm glad I'm glad because that's quite unusual I yeah. think don't you think I mean I don't know maybe there are uh, we're speaking to loads of comedians out there who feel the same way well but I'm also in a comedy partnership as well oh, right. shout out to Dave Bibby and he's very good at acting he's very good at uh, <laughs> you accents. basically find someone <laughs> no, but that's that can do those things that is interesting because yeah. I think I partly 
felt that. I don't know if that's why I got into partnerships. I don't think it was. But I think I partly felt that always in uh, partnerships. I felt like, you know, oh, they can do more of that stuff, mm. more, more of the uh, virtuoso performing. Certainly Rob Newman, who was an impressionist as well as, as a stand-up. He could do loads of voices and whatever. Um, and character performing. But actually, one thing I think I feel about myself is... Um, without in any way comparing myself to this person, but I am in the Eric Morecambe tradition of mm-hmm. when I wear a wig uh, and a false beard, it's clearly me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's not like Coogan or whatever where they've transformed yeah, into yeah, another yeah. person and they're yeah. suddenly that character totally. Yeah. No, I am me. It's one of the things that's funny about it yeah, exactly. is yeah. that's clearly David Baddiel. Yeah, it's His David Baddielness is shining through <laughs> his shit attempt to wear a wig and a, and a beard. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And I've got a but I feel the same way when I think we were doing sketches with Dave, like he he's being amazing, and I'm like, well, I'm just being Jim, being shit. But yes, that's that's funny. the comedy in it. That's the like, chemistry. I'm, yeah. I'm owning my shitness. Yes, yes, in yes, a way. Yes, yes. And, it, and it's important to do that. I think it's hard when you're in performing arts sometimes to accept. Okay, this is my role. This is what I'm doing. No, it's yeah. working, even if I'm not as brilliant as Dave. Well, what do you mean by brilliant? You see, I mean I'm sure he's brilliant. But what you mean is he's technically able to do lots of stuff, and that is great. But uh, what I would say about this thing I said about being wearily me mm. is that I do think key, certainly to stand-up, but probably to comedy and, hey, to art in general, is to have a point of view. Right? Sometimes I watch performers and I think, God, you're brilliant at all that. You could do any bit. You're suddenly being, I don't know, you're doing a bit, and look, your impression of Donald Trump is amazing, uh, and now you're Obama talking to Donald Trump and all that stuff. I mean, to be honest, I thought this a bit about Robin Williams. I know that's terribly sacrilegious, mm. but... I remember watching Ron Williams and think I don't really know what the point of view is. All I'm doing is hearing loads and loads of voices mm. done really quickly, right? Um, uh, but so what I think is, it doesn't matter if you aren't able to do all that, even though you might feel, as it were, comically disabled a bit. But it doesn't matter if you've got your point of view and your point of view is saying something, yeah. you know. And that's really what I think is important. But obviously, it's ha- it, it helps if you've got both. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, and sometimes so, nice. sometimes you might have to be in a double act out both or whatever yeah, but the yeah. point of view is more important in my opinion yeah yeah than the facility yeah you know but I was so, like, yeah. to, to use a completely different example someone I think it might have been Paul Morley once said that they thought that um, Barney Sumner's voice was a better voice than Pavarotti's voice because Pavarotti's voice can only show virtuosity. It can only show grandeur and virtuosity, mm. whereas Barney Sumner's voice can show, uh, you know, failure and pain and sadness and yearning and being cracked and all the complicated stuff of humanity, not yeah. just yeah. greatness. Yeah. You know, and I think that's true. But it's hard sometimes to recognise that in yourself, I think, yeah, isn't it? Even I if a lot agree. of people are saying, oh, you're, you're good at that, and you're like, well, I'm yeah. not as good as this guy. So I'm, yeah, no, I'm I know not. what you mean. I totally know what you mean, yeah. No, I mean, if you can show off... Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, I'd love to. <laughs> yeah, if I could. it's fucking great. <laughs> yeah. I do actually do an accent. Uh, I do a couple of accents in my new show. Uh, it's partly because I have to, because the new show is very tweet-based. Uh, and so I do oh, a lot so of you, it where... You're I, accenting tweets. I, I, well, I bring up <laughs> tweets. A lot of them are people trolling me, yeah. right? And so one of the things that I do is when I got trolled enormously by Scottish nationalists for doing a joke, an incredibly noxious joke about Nicola Sturgeon. And my point in that is I show the incredibly noxious joke and then I show the visceral, extraordinary, furious reaction. 
And someone once said, some, actually, while that was going on, I think, uh, someone else who was not mad said to me, whilst they saw, they saw this Twitter storm happening, they said, yes, you've forgotten, haven't you, that I think he said political batshittery began with the independence <laughs> referendum. And I thought, oh, yeah, uh, perhaps it did. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, that involves me reading out some of these tweets that are so incredibly angry about this innocuous joke, and I have to do them in a Scottish accent. Do you do them in the same Scottish accent or various different? I imagine there's various different ones. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine I'm thinking it's the same. But, and I have to, by the way, perform this on my tour. I'm yeah. doing Motherwell, Glasgow, Edinburgh. Oh, okay. Brilliant. Aberdeen, so <laughs> yeah. fucking hell. A, a, it's going to be bad because I'm taking the piss out of the Scottish nationalists, and B, I'm doing a terrible Scottish accent, so I'm sorry now in advance if anyone's listening <laughs> to this in Scotland. Yeah. It's interesting that Charlie think. When, were you fa- when do you think you were first aware of Twitter storms? and, and Have you been... Because like, it feels like when I first joined Twitter, it wasn't... No, well, it seemed quite nice. Yeah, well, I've been. Uh, yeah, well, exactly that. <laughs> yeah. I, I, a few people have said this to me recently as I've been talking about my new yeah, show. Yeah. Is like, uh, you know, how did you get into it? And yeah, India Knight, the very nice yes, uh, yeah, journalist, yeah. who's a friend of mine, said to me, "Oh yeah, there's this website. It's a sort of." thing where you talk to other people and it's lovely she said mm. it's like a cocktail party yes. where all your nicest friends at it and now of course it's like a cocktail party the nazis have gay crashed <laughs> yeah. that's what it's like now yeah. um and so uh yeah i mean it I, it was was nice for about five minutes yeah. and then very very quickly it got abusive i don't know when i first noticed it particularly um but I've noticed it many times yeah. since. I wouldn't be able to tell you what my first Twitter storm was, but um, I've had lots of them. Yeah. Uh, you know, and now I'm generally like, yeah, it's fine. I mean, you know. You're I'm, happy to go in there. Well, I sort of have to be, yeah. I think. Um, I mean, whatever for whatever reason, now I would say one in five of my tweets goes viral. And one of the things I say on the show, which is about social media, basically, you know, uh, the show isn't, just about my my social media thing but it uses my social media feed it's sort of my twitter feed live but using that to talk about all the things so it does act as a diary yeah, for the yeah. last 10 years yeah, so yeah. i t- obviously on that feed i've talked about brexit i've talked about trump i've talked about anti-semitism i've also talked about me growing old so yeah. i can use all that to talk about all these things as a starting point yeah, yeah. or whatever um Sorry, what was I, now you see, I forgot what I was talking about. <laughs> uh, shit, you see, like that's down. what happens. Yeah, yeah, that's what happened. Um, no, it's gone. The thread's gone. Um, we what, were, hang on, what did, you, what did you ask me? Oh, do it was you about go the, in there? Do you get, yeah, get back going into... You said one in five of your tweets goes, goes viral. Goes, oh, yes, thank you. Yes. That's that. Thank you. Yeah. Brilliant. So one of the things I say in the show yeah. is that Twitter's always a sort of win-lose game. Social media's a win-lose game uh, because... Everyone wants to have success, and success is measured to some extent in virality. Yeah. Yeah. So, however, I can promise you that however, the more successful your tweet is, the more hate it will inspire. <laughs> so, uh, I, at the end of the show, I show this tweet that J.K. Rowling uh, retweeted, which meant it got 12,000 likes. That yeah, sounds yeah. great. It was about multiculturalism. It was a positive tweet about multiculturalism. It was when Sadiq Khan had lit a menorah in Trafalgar Square, mm-hmm. and I said, multiculturalism, despite all you may have heard, is mainly fucking great. Yeah. So get JK you know, retweets, it gets 12,000 likes, and the most incredible hate you can imagine. I mean, people saying I should be drawn and quartered <laughs> in the public square for being a traitorous shitbag to this country. I mean, you know, and that's yeah, part yeah, of yeah. it. Because, of course, it is all silos. We all know yeah. this. If you do a tweet that's very successful, which quite a lot my tweets are if you measure success in terms of them being retweeted yeah. or whatever it will very quickly break out of your silo and next thing you know a tweet that seems to be very liked will be utterly hated 
in fact, something I've noticed is that you, if you do a tweet that's very, very liked, once it breaks out of that and people hate it, one of the things they will say is, why do you think this? No one fucking thinks this. <laughs> yeah, uh, and I'm yeah. tempted to say, it's just got 12,000 likes. <laughs> yeah. It's there in mathematics, yeah. right? But they still say, no one fucking thinks no, this. Yeah. Why do you... Blah, blah, blah. So... And then you feel a bit of an idiot saying it's got 12,000 likes because Piers Morgan tends to do a thing when he's trolled of saying, I've got 6 million followers. You know, kind of like, yeah, but, you know, that doesn't mean what you've said is good. No, no. Yeah. And I did one of those bot check things a while back on Piers Morgan. How do you... So oh, there's, there's like yeah, software okay. you can put in yeah. you know, and you, it tells you how many bots they've got. Yeah, but they keep on changing that because I think Twitter, because I've noticed that, not, well, I've noticed that my follow account will be 650,000 and the next day it'll be 630,000. Yeah, mine goes down. Yeah, down, because, yeah, because they're culling, trying to cull yeah. bots all the time. But yeah. I think Piers Morgan, nearly half of his were bots. Wow. Honestly, it was a huge number. Which was no, no, well, nice. well I, I, did a, <laughs> I did a documentary. I've done a documentary about Holocaust denial yeah. um, for the BBC, which is going out next year. Um, and I don't think this uh, interview is in it anymore, sadly, uh, just because we had to cut it for time. Uh, but we interviewed this guy uh, in America who is a sort of analyst of social media, because some of it is about social media. Mm. Uh, and he said that an incredible amount of, uh, particularly of, rage on Twitter will be generated by bots. Yeah. Um, and he was sort of telling me, which are complicated for me, that I shouldn't, because my approach, as you probably know, is to treat them like hecklers. Yeah. And if they're like hecklers and I put them down, I don't ignore them, I put them down. And, yeah. you know, I do that quite a lot mm -hmm. and it's funny and some of the show is about that and whatever and some of the show is also about whether or not you should do that, blah, yeah, blah, blah. Yeah. But I don't really go into, because I don't really know, like, are they real these people? And he mm -hmm. keeps on saying and he said, well, you know, I know you might feel you bested blah 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 but it was probably someone who was just generating it because they do and then, and then a, a large part of me wants to say why yeah what i don't understand what is the political end point of someone slagging me off and then i take the piss out of them and but what like, what i don't understand what it is mm. i mean i can tell you one thing that someone else told me a guy called david patriarchos told me he also is an analyst of social media so I said to him once, why, why is there so much anti-Semitism? Not just, I don't mean just in terms of like people being hateful, which obviously some people are, mm. but politically, why is there, you know, uh, like, for example, I've seen anti-Semitic tweets that I'm pretty sure are from bots, yeah. right? And I said, what end point politically does that serve? So he said, he said, I can tell you, I monitored one particular site for three years, and it was an anti-Semitic site with Holocaust denial. I mean, obviously, it shouldn't even be on fucking Twitter. Yeah, but yeah, it, yeah. It was just full of anti-Semitism, right? And it got, he said, 30,000 followers because anti-Semitism is a dog whistle. It's a dog whistle to people with very extreme political beliefs, right? So it gets 30,000 followers, and then there's a bait and switch. He said two months before the Brexit election, yeah. it suddenly started pumping out very powerful yeah. leave messages because it knows that 30,000 people will probably also believe this. Uh, and he says that's how it works. It's like anti-Semitism is used to essentially mobilise those people who will, who, who will believe all sorts of other extreme yeah, yeah, political yeah. beliefs. And I thought, fuck. Yeah. yeah. Fuck. Yeah. Who who is who's the head of Spectre? Yeah. Who's yeah, worked exactly. all that yeah, out? Yeah. yeah. Right. That seems unbelievable. That's worry. Yeah. That's really worrying. It's terrifying, mm. isn't it? Yeah. Do you yeah. think I talking about sort of trolls on Twitter and stuff? Do you think it's just sort of human nature for us just to like fucking ruin everything? I often think that mm. because the, I, Twitter's been ruined, Facebook's been, Facebook's been ruined, YouTube's on the way to being ruined. Yeah. Instagram seems okay at the moment. Well, here's, here's what I think. Right. I think in the 
when the Berlin Wall came down in whenever it was, 1989, and it, probably in the early 90s, a book called Fukuyama wrote a book called The End of History, and that book was sort of saying great conflict is over, you know, and it sort of implied something, which is, oh, humanity's got to a point where everything's going to be nice, right? And we've had all these wars and all this terribleness, right, all over many centuries, but now, end of history, I'm like, and then what do we do? We invent a technology yeah. that makes everybody hate each other and fucks everything up. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really extraordinary how we are able to do that because I think, I think I did feel probably briefly in the early 90s, oh, you know, we're sort of safe. We've got past nuclear threat and blah, blah, blah. But we're not. And we did that to ourselves. And we've taken this thing that could be, yes. you know, the internet or whatever, Twitter, this wonderful technology to unite yeah. us all, yeah, connecting, make, connect with people, us connect yeah. people that we don't know, yeah. we don't know their yeah. backgrounds, and we yeah. can learn something, and yeah. it's just turned into this pile of well, shit. Well, Jim, let me do come and see my show, because actually my show is quite hopeful. Well, yeah. it's, not, it's not straightforwardly hopeful, because it doesn't say what side will win, but what I do in the second half of the show particularly is I say, okay, here's the real fucking darkness. The first half of the show is a lot of people slagging me off and me dealing with it and blah, 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 and all sorts of things that come out of that. Uh, but then in the second half, I show some really fucking dark stuff, including Holocaust deniers and blah, blah, blah. But then I also say, okay... Now, sometimes when I'm dealing with these people and I'm being funny, other people who are not them join in and make of what I've said, like, it's like, being, like suddenly it becomes like a comedy workshop. Yeah. Mm. And I, I, I feel like I'm the conductor of a huge comedy orchestra yeah. and I've got this brilliant comedy cavalry who will help me defeat the darkness, right? And it can be really beautiful when that happens. And also when I'm talking about ageing, for example, like suddenly, I mean, to use an example, I did a thing, like a tiny little observational remark on Twitter about how scrolling back the time on date of birth dialogue boxes is starting to take a depressingly long time indeed <laughs> yeah. for me, right? And then this woman tells me about how she tried to enrol her dad onto ITV player. There was no option to scroll back quickly. She had to do it month by month. He was born in 1929, right? And I think that's connectivity, because now I have a vignette yeah, yeah. into that woman's life. I feel like I know her, and she's told me a really sweet thing, yeah. right? So I think it's still there, yeah. that stuff. It's just it's constantly under assault. Yeah. And yeah. we are, to some extent, in a battle with the trolls. And I think it's brilliant when people, you know, take what I've said, when I'm trying to do, say something that disarms a troll, and they make something of it. So I think it's not over, is what I think. Yeah. When you say it's just a cesspit, yeah, yeah. I think it is a cesspit, but there are still amazing things in that cesspit, you know. You do get those wonderful threads sometimes, don't you, of people yeah, yeah, I mean, taking a meme and then... Yeah, really funny. It. There's still lots and lots and lots of really funny people. And what is social media? Social media is really people saying, here I am. Yeah. It's a huge fucking clamour for identity. And what uh, one way of saying here I am is to turn the volume up on what you think. Yeah, so by getting really angry, and yeah. I noticed that very early on, is that I thought, is this person really that angry about this? I thought, no, they're not. I mean, they might think they are, but they're not. What they are is wanting to say, I am whatever I am. I am a Brexiteer, or I am a feminist, or I am a whatever I am, and so I'm going to get more angry than I should do about your tiny little joke yeah. because I want my identity confirmed, yeah. right? Um, and so I think that is a big issue with the with the with social media um uh, but i think there's also lots and lots of really funny really witty really joyful stuff in there as well 
That's probably all full of Giles as well. Yeah. Also, did you? Well, Giles has been an immense force for good, actually. Yeah. Because I love the fact that Giles, you know, relentlessly does his. Here are the nice people on Twitter that yeah. I follow. I'm always in there. <laughs> Me I'm too. Always I don't know ple- why. <laughs> yeah. I've always been pleased with that. It's a great beacon of niceness. Um, and you oh, know, well, you do it even when I haven't retweeted anything you've said. Yeah, that's right? fine. Or I don't communicated mind, with yeah. you in any way. So <laughs> thank also, you for that. Did you just say hope in the cesspit? Did you say there's hope in the cesspit? I might have done. It sounds like the follow-up to Beach in November. It does a bit. Hope in the <laughs> cesspit. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I think Beach in November released Hope in the Cesspit. <laughs> yeah. It was their first album. It, first album. <laughs> it died, it died it a terrible it death. It got to 204 yeah. in the it charts. Yeah. No, no one bought it except your mums. Have you got all the music? Like well, from on, Beach in November? Yeah. Can um, you go into your computer and find, no. the, find the MP3s? Oh. No, no. Because I found the odd. Did I didn't you? find them, basically. Cause obviously so what we're, were we recording on? Well, we're track. older than that. Uh, yeah, we were recorded on four tracks, yeah. so I got a bit of that. But we actually went into the studio uh, uh, and recorded. Yes. We never got signed, but we recorded a couple of Dave Gavrin's tracks. Um, and I can't remember who it was Do they now. stand up? I think they're all right. Yeah. Yeah, I think they're, I think they're pretty good. Uh, he is singing in like, the lead singer of Blamange. Does that mean anything oh, okay. to you? Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think Blamange, what do they do? Do they dancing on the... Not dancing, that's a song, Upside Down. Oh, I can't oh yeah, right. yeah, yeah. In this very, very 80s way of yeah, singing, yeah. blah, blah, blah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, yeah. he's doing that, right? <laughs> and I think, why are you doing that? Uh, but uh, at the time, I didn't ask. So anyway, we, someone, I think it was a, a drummer, who's a guy called Pete Smith, who uh, was a brilliant drummer, now an academic at uh, Lancaster University, uh, he sent me it. And, uh, Amazing. I really like loved hearing it. And actually, I think it does stand up in a very... Um, you were playing guitar? I was, I was playing... Yeah, I'm playing yeah. guitar on that, and then sorry, this is very detailed. No, and then good. later on, we became a three-piece. I think when we were intro exit, oh, okay, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And, I be- and I played bass. Ah, oh, okay, yeah. it's a different instrument, isn't it? It is a different yeah. instrument. That's true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because the things people have learned. I know, I know. <laughs> I know. It's different to guitar. Yeah. From guitar. You're welcome, everyone. No, but it is because people that play the guitar think they can play the bass, but it is very much different. Well, no, it is a different thing within yeah. a band. Yeah, it's yeah. quite a bit, quite. Yeah, yeah, you've got to be really tight with the bass. Yeah, band. and actually, I think. I, I, Personally, I was much better at guitar because yeah. I, I, there's a bit of a responsibility as a bass player, which is to keep the rhythm going. Yeah, I yeah, don't yeah. like that responsibility. No, no. Whereas if you're playing guitar, you can sort of fiddle also, about. Yeah, and you've got and to be so really locked matter. with the drummer as yeah, well. Yeah, I don't like that. not very good. Well, he was really good. He yeah, was too good. Okay. I wasn't good enough oh, on the right. bass <laughs> to be locked with the very good drummer. That's the yeah. real problem. Yeah. I love what we've done here. We've literally gone full circle. Yeah, it's great. Put music back to it. It's lovely. It's almost like we planned it. Yeah. Well, it is, yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Well, there you go, David Badil on the Bank Podcast. I, I, some words that I'd never thought I'd say hear myself. I know, yeah. and they say, don't they, like never meet your heroes? And, yeah, but, but actually, um, sometimes it's really, it's really beneficial to do so because they turn out to be really nice people yeah, yeah. and just legends. So, uh, thank you, David. That was so, so, so good. Yeah, really um, appreciate, really appreciate you your time. Um, yeah, ah, oh, just amazing. We're so lucky with some of these pods. We're getting, I know, and it's, you know, like, it's really, oh, I don't know. I use the word inspiring a lot when we talk about our guests but um it really is you know i'm i have a very different outlook on life after the last year or so of doing these podcasts and um yeah i've really it's just really been amazing experience doing it and i felt i got like a 
I got like an individual comedy schooling from David as well, which is amazing. Um, and also his new show about social media. Yeah, which sounds really good. Oh, fantastic! You should definitely go and see it. I think it starts in the new year. Yeah. Um, February time I think but yeah. Uh, yeah definitely go and check it out and I like the idea of the sort of the there's an angle of hope yes because <laughs> we do get we did get into you know how frustrating social media can be but yeah. the idea that actually there's a bit of hope there is is encouraging and Absolutely. speaking of which we get some wonderful messages on Twitter we do. we're very lucky we're very lucky um, so I'm going to read one out now it's from Jamie Parkinson and Jamie says just listening to the blank pod with Gary Lineker Giles Pelly Phillips and Jim Daly 10,000 positive comments, but you focus on the one negative. That's what Gary said on the pod. Remember him yeah, saying that? Yeah, yeah, Us teachers do this every day, don't we? Really interesting to hear you on here, Gary. Great podcast series, everyone. That's yeah. really interesting. Yeah, it is great. And it's amazing. Sometimes we keep, we obviously, people are still listening to a lot of the back catalogue. Yeah. And hearing, you know, so many, uh, still so many great poignant moments yeah. from, from all the old ones. You know, yeah. Like, and, and I remember, you know, the Gary Lineker podcast very well. It's one of the earlier ones. And, uh, yeah. What a privilege to sit down with Gary. And we say on this pod, don't we, 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 there must be people listening that do different careers and, and um, you know, taking away different bits. And the fact that, that Jamie is a teacher there and is taking away what Gary's saying and applying it to their life yeah, as well. So that's, yeah, that's interesting. It's a lovely feeling to know people are, are, are utilising some yeah. of the, the brilliant words that people come up with. Not us, obviously. <laughs> the, the, guests. <laughs> the guests. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've got another one here from Fred Goth. On Twitter, for truly wholesome interviews, Giles Pettyphips and Jim Daly's Blank Pod cannot be beat, Ooh. which is a very nice thing to say. It's truly one of the best podcasts around for those who really need to know it's okay not to be okay and what they feel is valid. Oh. Yeah, so that's really lovely. Thank you, uh, Fred, for that. That's brilliant. That's really nice. Yeah. I've never been called wholesome, I don't think, in my career. So that's lovely to... Uh to be labelled as wholesome. Thank you, Fred. And uh, we hope you're doing okay, because that's, uh, that's a nice tweet to receive. Um, yeah. So if you want to tweet us and let us know your favourite episodes or anything you've taken away from them, our handle is... BlankPod. And we're also on Twitter. Oh, sorry. And we're also on Instagram and Facebook as well, which is the same handle. At BlankPod. Uh, and our email address, if you want to send us an email, is... The Blank Podcast. No, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> our email is... Blank podcast at 2018 at gmail.com. That's the one. Uh, and that's it for this week. So we'll be back next week, of course. Another guest. But in the meantime, have a great week. Charles? Thank you. And you, Jim. Thanks, mate. And we'll see you again soon. Bye. Bye. Box Media Podcast.